This is CNN Breaking News. Morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us on this Monday. Of course, it is a day uh, that is a very sad day for everyone. For the world, September 11, 2023, it has been 22 years uh, since this country was attacked on September 11th, and we will remember and mark that throughout the morning. We'll be watching ceremonies. Well, there'll be remembrances all morning long. You'll see it right here on CNN. But we do begin with this because right now President Biden is heading back to the United States from the G20 summit and a stop in Vietnam. He will mark 9-11 when he stops in Alaska. He's not the only world leader on the move. This is our breaking news this morning. Several South Korean media outlets are reporting that North Korea's Kim Jong-un appears to be on his way to Russia. This news comes just days after U.S. officials warned that Kim and Putin could meet to discuss a potential deal to supply Moscow with weapons for its war in Ukraine. Neither Russia nor North Korea have confirmed that meeting, but we do have team coverage this morning as this is all very fast moving. CNN International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson is standing by in London and CNN's Paula Hancock. Cox is live in Seoul, South Korea. Paul, I want to start with you. What are we learning at this moment? Well, Phil and Poppy, what we are hearing is from South Korean media reports at this point that they believe that Kim Jong-un is in his armored train and he is on his way northeast towards Russia. Now, at this point, uh, neither side, as you say, has actually confirmed whether or not this is the case. We are also just hearing from Russian state media that Vladimir Putin has arrived in Vladivostok uh, for that Eastern Economic Forum, which is being held there uh, to the eastern side of Russia, which is where uh, Kim Jong-un is believed to be heading. Now, this is a meeting that neither Washington nor Seoul want to happen, but it is one that they have both predicted. We have been hearing in recent days uh, that U.S. officials, backed up by South Korean intelligence as well, uh, believe that they are actively uh, working towards an arms deal for North Korea to be able to provide Russia uh, with much-needed ammunition, for example, or small arms, something that North Korea has great production capability for. Uh, in return, of course, we're hearing from U.S. officials uh, that Russia could give North Korea uh, some core nuclear and missile technology. Uh, so this is clearly a meeting that neither side, uh, Washington nor Seoul, want to see happening. It was 2019, the last time that these two leaders met, the first time they met as well, when Kim Jong-un uh, went to visit uh, with, uh, with Vladimir Putin. Now, at that time, there were no significant announcements, no significant developments towards a closer relationship. But certainly in recent months, we have seen that change. The Russian defense minister, for example, back in July, went to Pyongyang and was given the red carpet treatment, uh, surrounded by a military parade and an arms expo. North Korea showing off its military capabilities. You know, you know Nick, we, we heard Kim Jong-un over the weekend in this marking of the 75th anniversary of the, of the nation, uh, talking about deepening ties between it and Russia and it and China. Can you just talk to the big picture significance of what would be this meeting between Putin and Kim Jong-un for the world? Um, it would be significant because it potentially means the war in Ukraine goes on a lot longer because what President Putin needs right now is more weapons and more ammunition because they're getting used up uh, in Ukraine. It's a war of attrition. And if he wants to win, he has uh, already got his he's already got his factories working 24-7 in some cases producing weapons. North Korea uses the same type of weapon systems and could be a ready and useful supplier connected 
connected to Russia by land. So the implication is that this could help extend the war in Ukraine if Putin is going to follow up on his defense minister's trip to North Korea, which did seem to be about expanding uh, cooperation in the, in, in the field of armaments. And we heard just last week from Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson, saying that, the, that Russia was going to continue its relationship with North Korea regardless of what other countries think. So this is a potential of concern because not just what North Korea gets, uh, not just what Russia gets out of this, but what North Korea may get in terms of technology to help it launch satellites successfully, technology to help it build successful nuclear capable uh, submarines. This is the sort of unintended fallout of the war in Ukraine. You have these relationships deepening, as Russia says it intends to do. The content of that deepening, um, we don't have full visibility on. Yeah, it's, it's the scale of the technological transfer, I think, that really worries long-term, at least, Western officials at this point. Paula and Nick, uh, we'll be watching this throughout the course of the morning. Thank you, guys. Of course, we also want to update you on what's happening in Morocco this morning. The critical 72-hour window to rescue survivors from that tragic earthquake. That window is closing fast. More than 2,100 people are already confirmed dead. And right now, search teams are in a race against time to try to save survivors who may still be trapped in the widespread devastation nearly three days after the catastrophic quake. Take a look at this brand new video from our team on the ground. The situation is especially dire in remote mountain villages like this one that have been utterly flattened. Desperate families have been left stranded without food, water, medicine. Roads have been completely blocked by these landslides. These photos show a mountain village that has been almost entirely wiped out. More than 100 families had lived here. And now it is just a pile of rubble. Our international correspondent, Sam Kiley, visited a hard-hit village in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. Watch. Another victim buried. Returned to the earth that killed when it shook. More than 2,000 people have perished in the worst Moroccan earthquake in over 100 years. Most of the deaths were in villages in the Atlas Mountains, where homes cracked and crumbled late on Friday night. The pancaking of these buildings down a side street here in Malai Ibrahim killed 25 people. Three or four are still missing, believe buried in the rubble. And this is a pattern that has been repeated throughout this province. And it looks very often like there's been some kind of airstrike, the collapsing buildings here actually leaving holes as if they've been hit by Russian bombs in Ukraine. But this has been an all too natural disaster. At least three elderly people have been entombed here in the remains of their hotel and a fourth guest is missing. After the quake, Sammy called his parents for a day and a half. It rang out until the battery died too. I'm here just because I have lost two of my best things that I have in this life. My parents, my father and my mother, I have lost them here. His grief turns to anger at the government, as it does for so many here. They have no planification, only they have words. It's a balloon of words, only that they have words. That's all. 
Aid is arriving, but slowly. In Asni, nearby, authorities tell me that 27 people were killed in the quake and 1,200 lost their homes. So Fatima and her husband have said that when they were in the house, she was in the bath when this series of explosions broke out. They said there was no shaking of the ground. She's saying that it felt like the blast from a Kalashnikov automatic rifle, that this was like a sense that the place had been hit by a war. They had no idea that they were suffering from an earthquake. Luckily for them, they evacuated their family very rapidly. Uh, nobody in their family was killed, but in the village, there was Combien uh, 27 people were killed. The house is now abandoned. But Fatima led a team of local women to find food and shelter for the homeless before any aid arrived. All the food here, the result of private donations. Many villages here remain isolated, roads cut by landslides. Relief operations will focus on getting to them. Firefighters consider searching for bodies beneath the hotel. Their conclusion is disappointing. Amidst shocks and shattered masonry, it's just too dangerous to rescue the dead. So for now, Sammy's parents will stay buried where they are. So much anguish this morning. Our Sam Kiley, thank you for that reporting. Well, now we want to turn our attention back to the search for the escaped murderer, Danilo Cavalcante. It is expanding. State police say he stole this dairy delivery van we're showing you right now from a Westchester farm, then abandoned it Sunday when it ran out of gas, apparently slipping past the police perimeter before heading north. Officials say he's also changed his appearance from this to this, shaving his beard, cutting his hair, now wearing new clothes. You see that hooded sweatshirt there. CNN's Danny Freeman joins us live from Chester County, Pennsylvania. Danny, this is day 12. I believe you've been following this every single step of the way. Some pretty dramatic developments, though, over the course of the last 24 hours. Yeah, that's right, Phil. The last 24 hours and the last 48 hours, I think that the best way to characterize this right now, frankly, is this weekend was a major setback in the manhunt for Danilo Cavalcante. As you said, he slipped that police perimeter, he got his hands on a vehicle, and he's still on the loose 12 days after escaping. A convicted killer still on the run and still keeping police guessing. Pennsylvania State Police now say Danilo Cavalcante has changed his appearance, shaving his face and wearing a green hooded sweatshirt. The latest sighting, more than 20 miles from the Longwood Gardens area where police had focused their search. Cavalcante slipping through the law enforcement perimeter. I wish it had not happened. Unfortunately, there are a lot of circumstances. There are a lot of issues uh, associated with that property, tunnels, very large drainage ditches, things that could not be secured. You couple that with weather, aviation being down for a night. Pennsylvania State Police said Cavalcante got away after stealing this 2020 white Ford Transit van from a dairy farm on Saturday evening. Authorities said the keys had been left inside. This most recent incident is a reminder that he will take advantage of any opportunity to obtain items he needs. Police said Cavalcante later abandoned the van in a field behind a barn. They believe it may have run out of gas. But before that, police said Cavalcante attempted to meet with two possible acquaintances on Saturday night. One in East Pikeland around 9.52 p.m. and another in the area of Phoenixville at 10.07 p.m. According to police, no one responded to meet the 34-year-old fugitive. 
but one of those people recorded Cavalcante's visit from a doorbell camera, giving officers a glimpse of his new appearance. We ask for the public's help by familiarizing themselves with the updated photographs and description of Cavalcante, to check security cameras they have, and to call us immediately. Twelve days ago, this was the inmate who was caught on video crab walking to get loose. Authorities are urging people to secure their homes and vehicles because they still believe Cavalcante is in Pennsylvania. With many encounters already reported and confirmed sightings, people in the surrounding areas are on edge. I think I'm going to stay with my sister tonight, especially if they don't catch him. Just, you never know. They need to bring the National Guard out now. Enough's enough. Now, Phil, the Pennsylvania State Police noted it, but it's worth drilling down on it. The weather really has been challenging and will probably continue to pose challenges for this manhunt. A police saying at some points this weekend, helicopters could not fly. Rain possibly expected today as well. Yeah. Phil? Yeah. Weather combined with terrain and just a lot of unanswered questions. Danny Freeman, keep us posted. Thank you. Well, President Biden just wrapped up his trip to Vietnam. He is on his way home right now. We've got the highlights of that major foreign trip ahead. And Nikki Haley has seized on a CNN poll that shows her as the strongest GOP presidential candidate to take on Biden, which she told our own Jake Tapper. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As the sun comes up here in New York City in just a few minutes, you're looking at live pictures of Ground Zero. This is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, and President Biden will be marking the day from Alaska. He is headed there now after his visits to India and Vietnam. This trip included the G20 summit in New Delhi, where Biden made the case that the United States is a more reliable and trustworthy partner than China. But he also failed to unite the group around an explicit condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In Hanoi, Biden paid his respects to the late Senator John McCain. He visited a memorial near the site where McCain was shot down by the North Vietnamese when he was a Navy lieutenant commander. That was in 1967. And during Biden's visit, Vietnam also elevated the U.S. to its highest level of diplomatic ties, a comprehensive strategic partner, with Biden acknowledging how far the relationship between the, new, new na- the two nations rather has evolved since the Vietnam War. We find our Jeremy Diamond, who has been reporting on the entire, entirety of the president's trip, including that press conference yesterday. Jeremy, good morning to you. But writ large, is this considered a success for the Biden administration? 
Well, certainly the president and his team uh, feel that it was. And there's no question that the president has left Hanoi, Vietnam, with a very real, very tangible agreement to elevate that relationship between the United States and Vietnam. And it's a step that has not only significance for the bilateral relationship, but really for the administration's broader China playbook. It is the latest in a series of steps that we have seen President Biden and his administration taking over the last several months. We have seen the president host the leader of the Philippines at the White House for the first time in over a decade, host the Indian prime minister for a state dinner and have this very symbolic bi uh, bilateral trilateral summit at Camp David with the leaders of uh, Japan and South Korea. All of those countries are China's neighbors and all of those countries are united, if not by an outright sense of alarm about China's uh, aggressive military and economic posture in the region, then at least by a serious sense of concern and a wariness about uh, China's behavior. And so that is the broader context within which uh, this falls. And it is certainly significant for the broader geopolitical message. The president, though, yesterday, even as he takes these actions, he wanted to send a very clear message to China that all of these moves are not aimed at containing the country. Listen. It was less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. But as I said, I'm not, we're not looking to hurt China. Uh, sincerely, we're all better off if China does well. And it's also very clear that there is more than just geopolitics at play here. The U.S.-Vietnamese relationship today, we saw a $7.5 billion deal for Boeing and Vietnam Airways. We also saw the president talk about expanding semiconductor chip production here in Vietnam. The president also making a symbolic stop at the John McCain Memorial here in Hanoi, tying together the really nearly half a century evolution of this relationship from the Vietnam War to today. You know, Jeremy, obviously a heavy focus on the Indo-Pacific, but also Ukraine central to any of these major summits. Uh, there was a difference in the language in the joint statement, the G20 joint statement this year, as it pertained to Russia and Ukraine from last year. Uh, what actually happened there? Yeah, that's right. Last year's statement, Phil, made very clear that most of the G20 countries uh, directly held Russia responsible for that invasion of Ukraine. This year's statement did not include that language. And that language was carefully crafted over uh, hundreds of hours of negotiations by diplomats from all of these 19 countries plus the European Union. And ultimately, it was really a decision between whether to have any kind of joint leader statement uh, or to simply not have one at all. And so ultimately, the United States and other countries chose this more watered down language in order for there to be some kind of joint statement that nonetheless does uh, call out any attempts to grab sovereignty to violate another country's territorial integrity by force. And the United States, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan made this case very clearly just a couple of days ago where he said that he believes that that strong statement about territorial integrity is significant and significant because it also got a number of these developing countries that have really uh, remained neutral in this conflict to sign on board to that. The United States also didn't want India, which has hosted the summit, which put a lot of political capital into this summit to face the embarrassment of not having a joint statement at all. Quite a response from uh, the Ukrainians, of course, to yep. the lack of that language being in the communique this year. Jeremy Diamond, thanks for all your reporting throughout the weekend on this. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley not mincing words about what she thinks of the current relationship Jeremy was just talking about between the U.S. and China.
China's been practically preparing for war with us for years. Yes, I view China as an enemy. How much more has to happen for Biden to realize you don't send cabinet members over to China to appease them? You start getting serious with China and say, we're not going to put up with it. The former South Carolina governor also responding to a new CNN poll that shows her as the Republican candidate posing the greatest risk to President Biden. And the poll shows Haley leading Biden by six points in a hypothetical general election matchup. Haley says it shows Americans are ready for change. I think the majority of Americans know we need a new generational leader, that we need to leave the negativity uh, of the past behind us. The majority of Americans don't want to see a rematch between Trump and Biden. That's been very clear. CNN's Eva McKen joins us now. And Eva, the generational argument has been one Governor Haley has been putting out since the first day of her campaign. It's now seems like it's landing to some degree. Yeah, good morning to you both. What we have seen Ambassador Haley do on the campaign trail in recent days is really seize on this CNN poll, showing that in a head-to-head matchup, she could possibly be best positioned to beat Biden. Uh, She has made this argument about the need for a new generation of leadership central to her campaign. She maintains a majority of Americans just don't want to see this rematch between Trump and Biden. And in recent days, I've also heard her double down on her hawkish foreign policy positions. I'm really curious to see if that resonates with primary voters, you know, sort of calling China the enemy, because what we've seen is that populism has gained momentum, gained momentum among uh, conservative voters and then Many of them, if you speak to them, really reject this this pro-war, pro-involvement posture that we've heard Haley push. Uh, She still lags far behind Trump in support among Republican voters, though, feeling poppy. All right, Eva McKen, keeping an eye on the Haley campaign. Thank you. All right, tennis great Novak Djokovic took to the stands. I have many (laughs) thoughts. It was an amazing night. Number 24, his 24th Grand Slam title. We have that. And oh, by the way, I hope you didn't miss it this weekend. This was just amazing to watch. Coco Golf's big win at the U.S. Open next. Novak Djokovic crowned the winner of the U.S. Open last night with the Serbian tennis great, or GOAT, clinching his 24th Grand Slam title. He holds the most titles in men's tennis history. And while he may be 36, he is not slowing down. And I think it's important for ethical reasons to give a full disclosure. Uh, Poppy's very biased on this issue because she was there last night to watch the win. That's Poppy with her husband, Sinisha, taking in the match. CNN's Corey Wire joins us now. Uh, Corey, we're going to start with Djokovic, mostly because Poppy, I don't think, would have it any other way. But we do want to get to Coco Goff as well. I'm a huge Coco fan. I know you are, but it's it's a personal thing with with Novak. What was it like seeing greatness in action? It was a little personal. Well, this is like, so, full disclosure, I'm married to Serb. My husband was... Serbian born over there. So they've always talked about him being the greatest to see it. This first time either of us had seen him play live. It was magical, remarkable in every way. What did you you think? It's different when you see it in person, right? Totally. Uh, It's the same thing with most sports. At that level, when you see someone like that in action, it is 
very impressive. And this guy's 36 years old. He's like the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going and going and going. 24 Grand Slam singles title now, tying the great Margaret Court for most all time. And this is against world number three, Daniil Medvedev, who just beat Carlos Alcaraz, right? The number one player in the world. So he avenges his loss from 2021 at the US Open where he lost to Medvedev. There's a very sweet moment after this match. You know, he mentions he sees a special fan who is his biggest inspiration, his littlest fan up in the stands. Listen to this. When I was struggling the most, actually, physically and being under huge tension and stress, particularly in the second set, every, every time I would look at my daughter, she was sitting courtside facing me, facing the bench where I was seated. She would give me a smile and a fist pump. And that would, of course, melt my heart and, and, and give me this, this kind of uh, energy and, and, and strength and also playfulness that, that I needed in that moment. So to have his daughter there in the stands, his why, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but I'm just so jealous of you. I've never seen him play in person, Poppy. There they so are. there's that big moment, that sweet I, moment. That's what it's all about. And then the, the T-shirt, Mamba, I mean, he had thought during the tournament He's very, he was very close to Kobe Bryant, and so he thought a few days ago to make, have this shirt made. His whole family was wearing 24, of course, to mark Kobe and to remember him and this. One of Kobe's yeah. jersey numbers, yeah. of course, his 24th Grand Slam I, I do want to get to the NFL in a second because yesterday was a big day and then there's another <laughs> big game tonight, but I also want to mention Coco Gauff. Oh, right? Go, Coco, go, 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 go. That match go. was incredible, but also afterwards talking about her faith, her family, yeah. her had dad. like the greatest quote in the history of the world, thank you to the people who didn't believe in me, to those who thought they were putting water on my fire, you put gas on Gasoline. it. Gasoline. like frame it and put it in my <laughs> yeah. kids' room. And she is shining and burning bright. And what a story. 14 years old, she turns pro, right? And then... Last year, she's uh, at the French Open and she's in Paris graduating from high school virtually, right? It's a dream. It's a family dream. You see her talking about her mom and her dad. So many congrats to Coco becoming the first teen to yeah. win the U.S. Open since her idol, Serena, back in nineteen. And calling out her dad, saying this is the first time my dad, who used to coach her, by the way, has cried and he's in tears. Yeah. Oh, or she's just like usually tries to act all hard and now he's not. Um, NFL. Yeah. Big, yeah. big opening Sunday. However, big game tonight with a personal tie for you. Huge game. Yes. Uh, well, it's the highly anticipated debut of Aaron Rodgers, four-time league MVP, putting on that gang green Jets helmet. And, uh, but they have a tough task. They're playing against one of the greatest forces to ever step on a football field. And that are the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> one of my former teams that I played for. Um, it's going to be an awesome game. Rodgers against an incredible defense. And DeMar Hamlin, uh, this is his first live uh, real game, regular season game, uh, since he had cardiac arrest last season. Also on a Monday night game. It's going to be highly emotional. I talked to him just a bit earlier this week. It's going to be a very uh, emotional game with uh, lots of high stakes. High stakes, big game. Yeah, I think yeah. you'll be there too, right? Yeah, I will be there. And thanks for your report, by the way. Your really great um, special you. report on the safety of football. If you didn't see it Thank last you. night, everyone should tune in. Appreciate Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Well, lawmakers are staring down a deadline to act before the government shuts down. Where are the talks stand? That's ahead. And today it has been 22 years since 9-11. And 22 years later, people are still dying because of that terrorist attack. You will hear their stories next. He was diagnosed with 9-11 cancer, and we talk about the fact that 9-11 not only killed Uncle Tommy, but 20 years later, killed Daddy.
In the September 11th terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, more than 300 firefighters were killed that day. But today, we are still seeing the devastating impact of those attacks on those who were the first responders and who did initially survive. There's new data that show nearly the same amount of firefighters, so more than 300, have died of 9-11-related illnesses. Our Jason Carroll joins us outside of One World Trade Center this morning with his reporting on that and to remember what they did that day, Jason, is everything. Everything and Poppy, for so many of the first responders who worked at Ground Zero, they have been waiting, looking at the calendar and wondering when and if they would be added to the number of people diagnosed with post 9-11 related illnesses. And Poppy, over the years, that number has just continued to grow. I think we just miss him. He was just always present in everything we did. Jim Rosie says not a day has gone by where he has not thought about his father. If you were speaking to him, you were the only person in the world he was talking to. And um, he was as good as they come. His father, Lieutenant Joe Brosey, a veteran of the New York City Fire Department for more than three decades, died this past February 3rd after a long battle with stage four lung cancer. Doctors gave him months to live after his diagnosis in 2015. He gave this moving interview to the FDNY in 2019. Nothing's impossible, it just hasn't been done yet. You have to believe you're going to beat it. If you believe, it will happen. Lieutenant Joseph Brosey, Engine 88, February 3rd, 2023. Brosey's name, one of 43, added to the FDNY World Trade Center Memorial Wall last week, which commemorates firefighters, paramedics, and civilian support staff who died from post 9-11 illnesses. It's the second largest group added to the memorial since it was created in 2011, when 55 names were added. The number of lives lost from post 9-11 illnesses on the wall now stands at 341, almost equally the 343 FDNY firefighters killed that day. That number has grown each year, and my fear is it will continue to grow. Rosie says his father was at ground zero on 9-11 and remained working there day in and day out. So, too, was New York City firefighter Daniel Foley. Foley pledged to stay at the site until his older brother Thomas, also a city firefighter, was found. Foley ended up finding his brother's body 11 days later. He continued to help with the recovery efforts for months. He died from pancreatic cancer in 2020. He was 46. He was diagnosed with 9-11 cancer. And we talk about the fact that 9-11 not only killed Uncle Tommy, but 20 years later, killed Daddy. The message from firefighters and their families, years after one of the darkest days in U.S. history, first responders are still suffering and dying as a result of their service. The other thing is it's the people who aren't dying but are sick. And they're not living, but they're alive. And no one measures that loss. A final note, both Brosey and his brother Joe are New York City firefighters who were also there on 9-11 working alongside their father. Are you concerned about 
your health in, in terms of the future? Uh, I will say I, I monitor my health very closely. I, I will not live my life in worry. Rosie and his brother, as you heard him just say there, they need to get checkups every year. Poppy, uh, again, they monitor their health uh, every single year. Watch it very, very closely. He says his brother actually does have some respiratory issues, but part of their message here is just not to forget, not to forget the service of so many first responders on that day and to remember that they continue to pay the ultimate price. Poppy. We will never forget and always remember. Jason, it means a lot to have you there. Thank you for that reporting. Well, it is a critical week, economic week ahead for lawmakers and the White House. The Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Department, Wally Adeyemo, joins us live in the studio to discuss. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. The House is back in session this week after a rather elongated break. Lawmakers, though, they are staring down a looming government shutdown. The date to watch, that would be October 1st. Now, if lawmakers cannot come to an agreement by then, the government will shut down. That means hundreds of agencies and agency staff will all have to rely on nothing except to cease operating. CNN's Lauren Fox is following the latest on Capitol Hill. Uh, Lauren, we have been through this so many times, uh, you and I in particular, over the course of the last decade. Do you feel like this time is different or are they going to find a way out of this? Yeah, in conversations that I've had, Phil, over the last several days, it's become clear that there is no plan right now to avert a government shutdown. In fact, the plan is to get lawmakers in a room when the House returns and try to see if there's a path forward among House Republicans. L eyes are going to be on Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, who has his work cut out for him. That's because typically when you don't have an agreement on the broader year-long spending bill, you pass some kind of short-term spending bill, something like a CR, a stopgap measure to make sure that you get over that October 1st deadline. But even that is going to be a huge challenge for McCarthy. Over the recess, he had members on his right flank signaling that they were not going to support a short-term spending bill. Someone like Chip Roy arguing that he thought that that was something that he couldn't back unless there were a series of other riders attached to it, something that would never pass out of the Senate, Phil. So you already have this fight over the larger spending bill, but then you have a fight over even a stopgap measure to fund the government for a couple of weeks. Now, McCarthy can always choose to put a bill on the floor to make sure that the government stays funded but he could anger those on his right flank. And you're already seeing people like Matt Gates agitating that perhaps House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's time as Speaker is coming to an end. So those are the challenges that House Speaker McCarthy has in the weeks ahead. And that is some of the things that you're going to see over the next several days. When the House returns, they're going to try to pass a defense spending bill. But aides told me yesterday that they still don't have the votes for that. And 
over in the Senate, they are passing their bills on a bipartisan basis, which is going to make it very difficult for the House to continue to argue that they are going to be able to pass the funding bills with just Republican votes when the Senate is doing it on a bipartisan basis. Phil? Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of maneuvering, no clear path forward. 19 days, guys. Don't, don't be in a rush or anything. <laughs> Lauren Fox, thank you, as always, my friend. Well, just moments ago, the American flag has been unfurled at the Pentagon to honor the fallen on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. Later this morning, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, will host a ceremony at the National 9-11 Memorial to honor the 184 people killed in the attack on the Pentagon. The ceremony is only open to family members of the victims. Possible government shutdown, as Phil said, not the only critical date on the calendar that could affect the American economy. And your bottom line this week, 145,000 auto workers could strike against the big three in Detroit. Next week, the Federal Reserve considers another interest rate hike. And starting next month, 44 million Americans are going to have to start repaying those student loans. A lot of moving pieces here, but President Biden is pitching the public on a strong economy, embracing the term Bidenomics. However, a new CNN poll shows 58% of Americans think the president's policies have made economic conditions worse. We are happy to be joined in studio this morning by the Deputy Treasury Secretary, Wally Adiemo. Thank you very much, Mr. Deputy Secretary, for being here. It's nice to have you in person. Well, it's great to be here in person. Thanks for having me. Can you respond to that poll and how Americans feel because only 24% of Americans that we polled say the economy's gotten better under Biden. Are the American people wrong? Well, let me start with where um, the last segment ended and say that um, today is 9-11. And uh, we will never forget what happened. Um, and our hearts go out to the family members that were lost, but also to the talented men and women of the United States who defended them. Um, turning to the economy, uh, over the last two years, you've seen Americans start 10.5 million small businesses which is a record number. One-fourth of those are Latino businesses. We've created hundreds of thousands of jobs. The economy is moving in the right direction, especially when you look at our competitors internationally. Mm -hmm. In the G7, the U.S. economy is doing far better. But it's important to remember where we're coming from. We faced a pandemic that had global repercussions. The American people are still recovering from that. But as we recover from that, what we know is the American economy is doing better than any other economy in the world. We're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs, inflation's coming down, our economy is growing, investments are being made here in the United States. When I travel around the world as part of my job, companies around the world keep telling me that the place where they want to make investments is here in America, and that's proving to be true. So to, to the question though about how American people actually feel, are they wrong? Do you believe the data is what they're misunderstanding? Where's the disconnect? No, I think what's what we're seeing is that the American people are still recovering from COVID, still recovering from what has been a historically tough time in terms of a pandemic that cost um, lives and also set us back. But today, um, as we recover from COVID, we've seen what uh, American families' wealth return to pre-COVID levels. We're seeing job creation at historic levels. We're seeing the economy come back and inflation come down. What we're saying is that there's more work for us to do. We're committed to doing that work. And America is further along in doing that work than any economy in the world. And that's because of the grit and determination of the American people, but also because of the policies of the president. There's real uh, economic concern, obviously, about what within China, about what's happening to the Chinese economy right now. President Biden talked about this a little bit yesterday at that press conference in Hanoi. Here's what he said. It's not a criticism. It's an observation. He has his hands full right now. He has overwhelming 
unemployment with his youth. One of the major economic tenants of his plan isn't working at all right now. Talking about President Xi, he called the situation a, quote, particular crisis that they are having right now. How troubled is the Chinese economy right now? Poppy, I think this comes down to the choices we've made. In the United States, we made choices to invest in the American people, invest in the American economy, and that's why the American economy is doing far better no, than China No, but I'm asking today. about China. And China's economy what faces headwinds lens today. You, and how great are they? How great are those headwinds? They have significant headwinds. But the thing the Chinese also have is they have resources to deal with those headwinds in the short terms. For example, youth unemployment. The thing that we have to worry about is the long term in China, where they have structural challenges as well. Right. Demographics. Uh, high debt, and those are going to be far harder for them to deal with over time. A slowing Chinese economy is going to have an impact, um, but mostly on their neighbors. Okay. We heard uh, Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary, say that the Chinese have, quote, quite a bit of policy space if they decide it's necessary to use it. Is it your view that, that China is the biggest risk to the U.S. economy? You said mostly on their neighbors. You don't sound worried about the impact here. We saw their iPhone decision, for example. And I think that, you know, one of the things China does is they make particular decisions that may have impacts on selective companies. But when you look at the Chinese economy, the U.S. has some exposure, but it's limited. And part of the reason that we feel confident about the U.S. economy's ability to grow is because of the investments mm -hmm. we've made here in the United States. I do want to give you a chance to respond to what uh, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley told our Jake Tapper yesterday about how she views this. She said she views China clearly as a, quote, enemy, and she criticized the Biden administration approach to China. Here she is. I mean, how much more has to happen for Biden to realize you don't send cabinet members over to China to appease them. You start getting serious with China and say, we're not going to put up with it. They keep sending different cabinet officials over, Jake, and it's embarrassing. Treasury Secretary Yellen was just there in July. Your response to Nikki Haley's criticism? It's important for us to talk to China. It's the second biggest economy in the world. We want to understand what the Chinese are doing. As I said, China's economy has an impact on their neighbors, but also on Europe and on the global economy. So it's important for us to continue to talk to them. But the secretary sent a clear message that America is going to do what's in its national interest. We're looking, we look forward to working with China when that is in America's national interest, but also to holding them accountable when they take actions that hurt our economy. I'd be remiss if I did not ask you about what is going to happen this week with the United Auto Workers. You've got a, maybe over 140,000 auto workers striking against all big three automakers at the same time. The president said last week he doesn't think it's going to happen. We're four days from a potential strike. Is that still the belief of the Biden administration? It is the belief of the Biden administration. The auto companies and the unions are working from a position of strength. Uh, when I was last in government and during the financial crisis, they were in a very different position. Today, they're talking about how they can distribute profits and earnings in order to make sure that their companies can continue to grow. And we look forward to them reach, reaching a resolution. No strike. Yep, that's, a, that's where the president is. I appreciate your time. Please come back. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Bill. Well, this week, we could get more insight into when former President Trump will go on trial in that Georgia election subversion case. We'll have details. Stay with us. Good morning, everyone. It is Monday, September 11th, the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks here in the United States. We're going to cover all those remembrances throughout the course of the morning, but let's get things started with five things to know. There will be those ceremonies and remembrances. We will be watching them. 
but also this morning. South Korean media is reporting that Kim Jong-un appears to be on his way to Russia. They believe he's traveling by train. Now, you remember last week, U.S. intelligence said that Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin might meet to discuss advancing arms negotiations between their two countries. And it is a race against time in Morocco. Nearly 2,500 people now confirmed dead after that powerful earthquake. The next few hours, critical for emergency workers trying to rescue survivors. And the escaped murderer on the loose in Pennsylvania slips through the police perimeter. He was spotted 20 miles away after stealing a van. He also looks quite different. This is a new photo showing him clean and shaven, wearing a green hoodie. And Hurricane Lee has strengthened to back to a Category 3 storm as it nears northern Leeward Islands, the Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. Now, it's too soon to tell what impact Lee could have on the U.S.'s east coast. Right now, one of the most active volcanoes on Earth is erupting in Hawaii. Officials say the volcanic activity confined to the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and that there is no threat to surrounding communities. CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin, of course, right here this morning. Breaking news. South Korean media is reporting that North Korea's Kim Jong-un is on his way to Russia this coming just days after U.S. intelligence said Kim and Putin could meet to discuss a potential deal to supply Moscow with more weapons for its war on Ukraine. Let's go to our Paula Hancock. She's live in Seoul, South Korea. With everything we're learning this morning, this was expected, but now we know more. That's right, Poppy. Yes, the uh, the reports are that Kim Jong Un is currently believed to be on his armored train heading uh, northeast towards Russia. Now we know also from uh, Russian state media that uh, Vladimir Putin has arrived in Vladivostok, in the eastern part of the country, for that Eastern uh, Economic Forum, and this is where Kim Jong Un is believed to be heading Vlad- Vladivostok uh, as well. Now we haven't got it completely confirmed at this point, but as you say, it was expected. This is what U.S. officials backed up by South Korean officials as well and intelligence here had said last week saying that they believed that the leaders would be meeting uh, potentially this month. They do believe that they are working towards an arms deal. Uh, they know that uh, Russia, for example, wants ammunition, it wants small arms. Uh, and we all know, backed up by analysts, that North Korea has uh, some significant production capability when it comes to this. So both sides stand to gain from any potential deal. But it is a meeting that neither Washington nor Seoul want to see go ahead. So from Russia's point of view, they are looking for more arms to take to the front line in Ukraine. And we know that North Korea, for example, is is looking for a number of things. It's looking for for satellite technology, for example, from Russia. It would like uh, to have uh, more uh, core nuclear and missile technology information. And this is potentially the sort of deal that we could see. It's been four years since these two leaders met, uh, the first and only time that they met back in 2019. Uh, Nothing particularly noteworthy came out of that meeting. But now fast forward four years, an awful lot has changed. And it does appear, according to US and South Korean officials, that Russia now now needs North Korea and that Vladimir Putin is looking to do some kind of deal uh, with uh, with the North Korean leader. So certainly it shows from Kim Jong-un's point of view, his 
diplomatic priorities. Washington has been reaching out to Pyongyang on a number of occasions uh, over recent months, and it has uh, effectively been ignored. But we are seeing, uh, for example, in July, the Russian defense minister being invited to Pyongyang. Uh, the red carpet treatment, he, he saw a military parade uh, with Kim and his daughter, and he was taken through an arms expo in Pyongyang. So all the weapons and armory, armory capabilities that Pyongyang possesses were on show for the Russian delegation and the defense minister. The first time a Russian defense minister has been to Pyongyang, in fact, since the fall of the Soviet Union. So there is no doubt that this relationship is getting much closer. It is a worry for those in the region and for Washington, and it appears that Kim Jong-un is on his way to meet Putin. Paul Hancock, significant reporting. Thank you. Well, breaking just moments ago, now nearly 2,500 people are confirmed dead in Morocco as the death toll from Friday's catastrophic earthquake continues to rise. Right now, rescuers are racing against time to save survivors. That critical 72-hour window to find people alive in the rubble is closing fast. Now, rescuers have been struggling to reach remote mountain villages where people have been left without food, water, or power. This is new video from our team on the ground this morning. Just utter devastation in some of these villages. It's stunning. This was a community where about 100 families lived. It's now a heap of stone and concrete. Our international correspondent, Sam Kiley, joins us live from one of the hardest hit villages. You're there. You're talking to people. Last hour, we heard you speaking with a man who lost both of his parents from this earthquake. Well, yes, uh, what we've got here in uh, Azni, which is about uh, two miles uh, from Moulay Brahim, which is further up into those hills, and it is up in those hills where this earthquake has been most catastrophic, the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. Here in the foreground, though, you've now got the uh, government military swinging into action, building uh, displaced people camps. Uh, of course, shelter has been... Uh, utterly shattered for these people who've lost their homes throughout these mountains, which are very, very inaccessible. But there is now a massive both private and public uh, aid effort going. The, the roads are actually now jammed with vehicles as much as they are uh, in some parts with rocks. But this was the scene in those remote villages just yesterday. Another victim buried turned to the earth that killed when it shook. More than 2,000 people have perished in the worst Moroccan earthquake in over a hundred years. Most of the deaths were in villages in the Atlas Mountains, where homes cracked and crumbled late on Friday night. The pancaking of these buildings down a side street here in Malai Ibrahim killed 25 people, three or four are still missing, believe buried in the rubble. And this is a pattern that has been repeated throughout this province. And it looks very often like there's been some kind of airstrike, the collapsing buildings here actually leaving holes as if they've been hit by Russian bombs in Ukraine. But this has been an all too natural disaster. At least three elderly people have been entombed here in the remains of their hotel, and a fourth guest is missing. After the quake, Sammy called his parents for a day and a half. It rang out until the battery died too. I'm here just because I have lost two of my best things that I have in this life.
my parents, my father and my mother. I have lost them here. His grief turns to anger at the government, as it does for so many here. They have no planification, only they have words. It's a balloon of words, only that they have words. That's all. Aid is arriving, but slowly. In Azni nearby, authorities tell me that 27 people were killed in the quake and 1,200 lost their homes. So Fatima and her husband have said that when they were in the house, she was in the bath when this series of explosions broke out. They said there was no shaking of the ground. She's saying that it felt like the blast from a Kalashnikov automatic rifle, that this was like a sense that the place had been hit by a war. They had no idea that they were suffering from an earthquake. Luckily for them, they evacuated their family very rapidly. Uh, nobody in their family was killed, but in the village, there was combien uh, 27 people were killed. The house is now abandoned. But Fatima led a team of local women to find food and shelter for the homeless before any aid arrived. All the food here, the result of private donations. Many villages here remain isolated, roads cut by landslides. Relief operations will focus on getting to them. Firefighters consider searching for bodies beneath the hotel. Their conclusion is disappointing. Amidst shocks and shattered masonry, it's just too dangerous to rescue the dead. So for now, Sammy's parents will stay buried where they are. Now, uh, Poppy and Phil, the situation up in those hills remains unknown, even to the government for now. We were there uh, up in the foothills uh, just in the last hour, uh, and we could hear helicopters were flying, desperately trying to get out to those remote villages on hilltops to see uh, what the conditions are, indeed, whether or not there are any survivors. So we have no idea whether that figure of two and a half thousand, which has been more or less static for the last day, if you could call an incremental increase of a few hundred as static in an earthquake situation, it could go up very significantly if the authorities discover more horrors deeper into the mountains. Poppy and Phil. All right, Sam Kiley for us on the ground. Keep us posted, please. Thank you. Well, the manhunt for the escaped killer, Daniello Cavalcante, is expanding nationwide this morning. State police said he stole this dairy van, delivery van, from a Westchester farm, then abandoned it on Sunday when it ran out of gas, slipping past the police perimeter before heading north. Officials say he's also changed his appearance. You remember this photo from the last week plus? Now it's this, shaving his beard, cutting his hair, and wearing new clothes. CNN's Danny Freeman joins us live from Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, Danny, this is day 12. The last couple of days certainly have seen some dramatic shifts. What are police saying about the fact they haven't captured him yet? Well, listen, Phil, there have just been a tremendous amount of developments over the past 48 hours, and this weekend really showed a fairly large setback for the manhunt for Danilo Cavalcante. But really to understand why, I got to go back to Friday and Saturday. Remember, just a few miles from where we are at the command center, the whole area was pretty much shut down. They had the largest police presence yet in this manhunt. Those two days, there were troopers searching trunks, putting their flashlights in cars. That was the environment that Cavalcante was able to escape from. So here's what we learned yesterday. Cavalcante slipped that perimeter. He stole a van from a nearby dairy farm filled 
because the keys were actually left in that van. He then drove 20 miles north to Phoenixville, and that's where he was caught on that camera. He was actually looking for help from an old associate. That associate did not help him, though, uh, but that's where we got to look at his new clean-shaven look with the hoodie in tow. And then yesterday, police found that dairy van that he stole, but Cavalcante was once again nowhere to be seen. Now, Phil, we're getting new sound uh, from an interview with a former roommate of Cavalcante's that was given to uh, one of our CNN affiliates. Take a listen to what he had uh, to say about this manhunt. I had no idea he, he could do something like this. He like said he was someone super shy, like really quiet. Just for him to be caught so I can sleep, I can go live my normal life. Uh, everybody can feel safe again. Now, Phil, state police, of course, say they wish that this had not happened, that he'd escaped the perimeter. They say that no perimeter, of course, is 100 uh, percent foolproof. But listen, we're on day 12 right now. We've had a number of sightings, but at this point, still no capture. Phil, Poppy. It's absolutely stunning. Danny, thanks for staying on this story for us. Ahead politics, Nikki Haley seizing on the latest CNN poll, showing her to have the biggest lead in a hypothetical matchup against President Biden compared to her rivals, including Donald Trump, what she's telling CNN. And a commemoration set to begin at ground zero as our nation marks 22 years since the 9-11 attacks. We're going to be watching ceremonies and remembrances throughout the morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I think the majority of Americans know we need a new generational leader, that we need to leave the negativity uh, of the past behind us. The majority of Americans don't want to see a rematch between Trump and Biden. In terms of the primary, look, we're just getting started. Debate season is what kicks off um, the primary. We have made huge jumps in the primary polls so far, but this is the beginning of it. That was Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley taking aim at both the former and current presidents yesterday in her, really it was a fascinating interview that Jake did with her. Um, also, a new CBS poll over the weekend backs up her claim that Americans are ready for a younger generation of leaders. It showed really overwhelming support from both sides of the aisle for age limits for elected officials. And it comes after multiple recent incidents where high-ranking older politicians have faltered in the public eye, including this moment over the weekend where President Biden's press secretary seemed to sort of come in and cut him off as he trailed off answering uh, questions that reporters were trying to ask him at this press conference. Watch. It wasn't confrontational at all. Thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the press thanks. conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Let's bring in our team. CNN political analyst Coleman Hughes is here. Semaphore politics reporter Shelby, Shelby Talcott and New York Times political correspondent Shane Goldmarker. Good morning. Um, I actually want, we're going to get to Biden in that moment. Nikki Haley, mm. uh, even you are surprised by the rise of the last three weeks since the debate. Sure, yeah. If you had asked me three or four weeks ago, who is going to see a meteoric rise given this first Republican debate and in, in the aftermath of it, I would not have guessed Nikki Haley. My guess would have been that the GOP is too taken in by the foreign, poly, uh, foreign policy isolationism that a candidate like Vivek Ramaswamy has put forth, that Tucker Carlson has put forth over the past few years, blaming America for the war in Ukraine. Uh, but Nikki Haley has come around and has, has had a message that's much closer to what neoconservative uh, Republicans would have sounded like in the Bush era, that is pro the American military, that believes the military is a force for good, 
And I think that's part of what has resonated with an older school of Republicans uh, that like that message, in addition, of course, to her age. Shelby, to that point, you know, when you talk to, to folks uh, inside these campaigns, what do they attribute her rise to? Because the generational argument is the argument she's been making since day one, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. But to Coleman's point, has never shied away from her views on foreign policy, even if it has seemed a little bit out of step with where kind of the, the isolationist sect of the party has been, which I think early primary states sometimes will make that uh, rise even more. What do you think is driving this right now? Yeah, I mean, if you talk to her team, they'll say that they expected this from day one, obviously. Um, But I also think she's been pretty consistent in what she's been saying on the ground. And she has been. She was the the first person in after Donald Trump. So she's been out there longer than any of these other opponents who are vying to compete with the former president. And I think that matters, too. Now, what I found really interesting about this poll in particular was that even though you see the CBS poll where of her, where people want younger, yeah. people and want somebody younger. Limits. Yes. Yeah. And then you also see this poll where she is clearly up big against Joe Biden. But the problem is Donald Trump is still up in the polls. And right. so the, the thing when I talk to voters about Trump is it's not even that they don't, they aren't, they don't view the electability argument as important. It's that they don't see that Trump isn't as electable. So I, I think that's really interesting. And that's going to be the big question for Nikki Haley and everyone else in the Republican field is how do you how do you beat that? I think we should put in context how much she's risen and not, which is that she went from the low single digits sort of to the high single digits in a lot of these polls. Right. She's still really far behind Donald Trump. She's still pretty far behind Ron DeSantis. And so... This is a party that continues to be dominated by Republicans who are talking about a less engagement in the world. And she has picked off and maybe consolidated some support after that debate among that other part of the Republican Party. But it has yet to show up as a majority. One area where she has distinguished, 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 thank you, Monday morning, herself uh, against even those on the debate stage with her was on the issue of abortion. Right. And I want to play this exchange. It's between the vice president, Vice President Harris and Margaret Brennan yesterday on Face the Nation. What is it that you believe? I mean, what week of pregnancy should abortion access be cut off? We need to restore the protections of Roe versus Wade. But does it need to be specific in terms of defining and where that guarantee goes up to? and where it does not, at which week of pregnancy. We need to put back in place the protections of Roe versus Wade. You we know are why not, I'm asking you this I, question, but though. Because we're not, trying to, but we're not trying to do anything that did not exist before June of last year. We well, are it, saying, it wasn't no, crafted but, into law. Will not, shall we, will non-direct answers like that from this administration bolster Republicans' argument when they make claims about where Democrats stand on abortion and where this administration stands? 100%, because the big argument that you hear from Republican candidates is that Democrats won't say when they want abortion to be banned. And so you take answers like that, and you've heard Nikki Haley, she said, on the debate stage. So yeah, of course, that these kinds of answers or non-answers are going to be used by Republicans to bolster that argument. Um, to that point, though, you know, what's interesting is this is delicate. While this is certainly an issue inside the Republican primary, inside the Republican Party, this is delicate inside the Democratic Party, too, because 
uh, Democrats had legislation that went further than codifying Roe versus mm-hmm. Wade that the White House ended up getting behind. I don't think the president was very comfortable with that. They have since kind of moved that back, which is where you saw the vice president right now. This is considered an electoral winner for Democrats, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mm-hmm. Does it stay that way? Yeah, I, th- I think it likely will. And I think you'll see the candidates like Nikki Haley that are position- positioning themselves as moderates on most issues. They are going to be appealing to independents and even to some Democrats that don't want to vote for Biden, but don't want to vote for an extreme Republican candidate that's going to take a very radical position on abortion. And that's, I think, why we're seeing someone like Nikki Haley doing so well in a head-to-head matchup versus someone like Joe Biden. Shane, can I ask you, you know, what we saw uh, at the press conference before the president, I think it was actually when the president arrived um, in Vietnam, I've seen so many of those moments where, look, to be completely candid, staff is making him look worse than he does when they do stuff like that. He was sitting there answering the question and they, they play the like end of the Oscars, your speech is over, <laughs> jazz music as Karine Jean-Pierre gets on the mic and tells him to end. I understand yeah. there's a lot going on behind why they do that, but those moments... What do they say right now? I mean, I think it's a tough place for him to have his staff intervening. And you've seen it throughout his presidency where he'll say something and they come in after that to clean it up. This isn't exactly what he meant. And sometimes it was actually what he meant. Um, It's just another reminder that age is going to be a huge issue in this campaign. It's going to be a big issue for Joe Biden. It could be a bigger issue for Donald Trump in the future, although voters have not perceived him as as old as he is or as, as old as Trump. He doesn't look as old, right? Like, if, you, if you've if you tracked Joe Biden over recent years, you can see some of the physical decline. You can see the way he walks, just simple things you can see with your own eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's been a little less apparent with Donald Trump. Yeah. Thank you guys very that's much. Right. Appreciate it. Well, a legal setback for former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, a judge ruling he cannot move his election subversion case from, the, from Georgia to federal court. What that decision could mean for former President Trump. That's next. This week, the judge in the Georgia election subversion case will hold a hearing which may get more insight into when former President Trump will go on trial in that state. Now, this comes as his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, faced a major legal setback. A federal judge has rejected his bid to move his Georgia criminal case to federal court. And just last night, one of the lawyers representing Rudy Giuliani in the Georgia election interference case told CNN that they do not plan to file to move Giuliani's case to federal court. I want to turn now to our CNN senior legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, it is no longer we are imminently waiting for. There is a decision in the Meadows trying to move his trial to federal uh, court. What happened? Yeah, this was one of those Friday night specials. A big win for the district attorney and a loss for Mark Meadows. Now, he was trying to get his case moved over from state court to federal court. In order to do that under the law, he had to show that he was acting under the color of his federal office as the White House chief of staff. Now, to that end, Mark Meadows did something really unusual. Two weeks ago, he took the stand. You don't often see a defendant take the stand, never mind in a pretrial hearing like this. But the judge found that Meadows was unable to explain the limits of his own authority as chief of staff. Therefore, The judge ruled against Mark Meadows. He said, the judge in his ruling, the actions at the heart of the state's charges against Meadows were taken on behalf of the Trump campaign, meaning not as chief of staff by Mark Meadows in his official job, but really as somebody working for the Trump campaign. So the judge has rejected this motion. And for now, Mark Meadows will remain in state court, Fulton County, where he was initially charged. For now, seems to be a key caveat there. What happens next in this case? There will be an appeal. Mark Meadows, in fact, immediately filed a notice of appeal. Now, This argument is being made in 
the federal courts. Where we saw that proceeding play out, that was the district court for the Northern District of Georgia. Meadows will now get to automatically appeal to what we call the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, there are 13 federal circuits. The 11th Circuit is traditionally known as the second or third most conservative circuit. I'm not sure there's really an ideological angle here. But generally speaking, if you're Mark Meadows, you probably want a more conservative circuit. Whoever loses in the 11th Circuit can try to get the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case, but you can never force the U.S. Supreme Court to take a case. It's always up to them whether they want it or not. They take a minuscule portion, but this one has some important implications for separation of powers, federal versus state authority. So we could be in for two more levels of Uh, appeal. One of the things everybody was watching this Meadows-specific issue was looking at it from a broader perspective, too. What does this mean for the other 18 people involved in this case? What's your sense? Yeah, so there's a couple other people who we know have sought or may seek to remove their case to federal court. Jeffrey Clark has already filed his motion. He wants to get to federal court. Trump's team said late last week that he may file this motion. Of course, he was the former president. Important to know, though, the judge said each of these cases is going to stand on its own. Even though I ruled against Mark Meadows, he said, I'm going to consider each of these separately because each of them had different facts. Each of them had a different job. That said, not a great sign for Clark and Trump that Mark Meadows lost his case. If you're wondering, why would somebody care? Why would it matter if you're in state court versus federal court? From the point of view of Donald Trump, perhaps Mark Meadows and others, you might get a favorable jury pool in the federal court. It would draw from beyond Fulton County. You just look at the stats from 2020. Trump did better in those outlying counties than in Fulton County itself. Court of Appeals. We just talked about the 11th Circuit, known as a conservative Court of Appeals. And in federal court, you can argue for dismissal. You can argue that in state court, too, but you have a better chance of getting the case thrown out altogether if you get into federal court. All right. Thank you for the rundown, as always, my friend. Ali Honig. Poppy. All right. Breaking news. We are following this morning North Korea and Russia. Now both confirming North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will soon visit Russia at the invitation of Russian President Vladimir Putin. North Korean media says that Kim will, quote, meet and have a talk with Putin during this visit. Has not been said when exactly this is going to take place, but as we've been reporting, South Korea says Kim is already on his way. New York Mayor Eric Adams saying this city is struggling to handle the financial strain of caring for the influx of migrants. We're going to be joined ahead by the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He's with us next. And you're looking live at pictures of Ground Zero in New York City today, marking 22 years since the September 11th attacks. We'll be right back. This morning, we all remember the nearly 3,000 lives lost 22 years ago on this day in the 9-11 terror attacks at Ground Zero right here in New York. Families of the victims will gather to read their names as they do every year and observe several moments of silence to mark the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the crash of United Airlines Flight 93 in Pennsylvania. The first citywide moment of silence that will begin next hour at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time at the Pentagon, a ceremony at the National 9-11 Memorial to Remember Victims will also take place this morning. Bryn Grass joins us now from the 9-11 Memorial Plaza in New York City. Bryn, good morning to you. So many heavy hearts this morning, uh, and they will all be remembered. Absolutely. You can feel it here, Poppy. You know, it's an overcast day here in New York City, somewhat fitting uh, for the mood that is here at Ground Zero. I'm actually right by the South Reflective Pool. That is the site of where the South World Trade Center um, tower once stood. And we've been seeing family members come to this site this morning, placing flags, as you can see, some people uh, placing flowers, just taking a moment 
to reflect and remember really what this day means, the lives that were lost on 9-11. Just past this South Tower on the where the North Tower once stood is where that ceremony is going to take place beginning at about 8.30. And as you said, Poppy, that first moment of silence will be at 8.46 to remember when the tower was struck, the North Tower, and then subsequently five more moments of silence to symbolize when each tower was struck and then fell and the Pentagon was attacked and also Flight 93 uh, crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And I got to tell you, I was talking to the president of this memorial site and she said there's one thing very notable about this ceremony and that's that when we hear the names of those people who lost their lives here a lot of them will be read by children children who weren't alive when 9-11 happened 22 years ago and the purpose of that is to remind future generations to make them realize the heaviness of today and to keep it alive in everybody's hearts because of course there are so many of us who say, I remember exactly where I was when that happened, but there are so many people, so many young kids who were never alive during that time. So that is the importance of today to remember those people, but of course, to also think of all those families who lost those loved ones on this day. Poppy? Of course it is. It'll be powerful to hear that in the voice of children, especially. Bryn, thank you. Yeah. Well, following the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush established the Department of Homeland Security, unifying 22 agencies with a single mission to safeguard the American people. The continuing threat of terrorism, the threat of mass murder on our own soil, will be met with a unified, effective response. America will be better able to respond to any future attacks, to reduce our vulnerability, and most important, prevent this terrorist from taking innocent American lives. Well, today, that agency, the Department of Homeland Security's sprawling mission spans across terrorism prevention, law enforcement, border security, and much more. And joining us now is the man who leads that department, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I appreciate your time, uh, especially on this day of remembrance. And I, I kind of want to start with what President Bush was referring to there, uh, trying to reduce vulnerabilities, trying to, I think, uh, get in front of gaps that existed uh, in the lead up to 9-11, 2001. What do you think are the most acute vulnerabilities right now when it comes to Homeland Security? Well, uh, Phil, the, um, the threat landscape has evolved so significantly over the past 22 years. Um, today is a very, very heavy day. Um, as the, the individual who just preceded me so beautifully said, uh, we honor the lives lost and we have a commitment um, to never forget. We also have a commitment to keep our nation secure against an evolving threat landscape. The threat of cybersecurity, the threat of adverse nation states, the severity and frequency of extreme weather events, the phenomenon of disinformation used as a, a, a weapon against our country. The threat landscape is so different today than it was uh, 22 years ago. Uh, but we also are much more mature as a nation and as a Department of Homeland Security. We have evolved as the threats have evolved, and America remains secure today. Yeah, it is a, it is a running evolution. There's no question about that. Um, you know, a lot of times people look at uh, immigration, look at borders in terms of uh, homeland security. But I do want to ask you, since you are in New York City, it has been kind of at the center of, of an epicenter of the migrant crisis in terms 
of inside uh, the country. N- number of newly arrived asylum seekers since spring 2022 has surpassed 100,000 last month. Uh, major cost. This is what Eric Adams, the mayor, had to say last week. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. And Mr. Secretary, the mayor has somewhat clarified his comments, but not walked them back by any means. What is, what's your response to those comments? I would, say the, I would say the following. First and foremost, we're dealing with a broken immigration system, a fact about which everyone agrees. It is one of the rare things about which there's unanimity of views. And we need Congress to act, number one. Number two, within that broken immigration system, we are challenged by an unprecedented level of displacement in the Western Hemisphere of historic proportions. We have responded with a model approach that has proven to work, which is to build lawful pathways for individuals to arrive in a safe and orderly way and to deliver consequences for those who don't meet them. We are working very closely with the city of New York. We sent an assessment team here that devised approximately 25 recommendations. We are executing on those recommendations. We will address this together. You know, you mentioned the system, the model system that you have in place. Um, there has been there have been calls from both state and local leaders uh, in several states and localities to expand temporary protected status. Is that one of the options that you're considering right now, particularly as it pertains to Venezuelans and Nicaraguans? Uh, a temporary protected status has certain criteria that are set forth in the law. Uh, and we always evaluate the country conditions, which is what it is about. Is it safe for people who are present in the United States to return to their countries of origin? If it is not because of the conditions there, because of war, because of extreme weather disasters, etc., then we make a decision. We evaluate the conditions in the country on an ongoing basis. We have no decision today. Yeah, understood on that. But the, there were, I think, 20 Democratic senators, including New York Senator and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who signed a letter asking for the same thing, saying that based on their, their view of the conditions on the ground, it's merited. You disagree at this point? I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't disagree with the fundamental point that we have to provide re- humanitarian relief to those who are in need. We want additional funding from Congress to that end. And so with the fundamental value proposition, I agree wholeheartedly. What we will do is apply and enforce the laws that Congress has passed. And temporary protected status is something that is set forth in statute, and we will apply it as the statute envisions. But isn't that essentially your authority? You can make that application if the finding is there. It is a ma- it, yes, it is. It is a matter that the, the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security uh, address together in consultation with one another. You mentioned the funding we saw. You know, from- um, go ahead. Oh, if I may, if I may, uh, uh, Phil, we're also just an example of a broken immigration system. The statute provides immigration law provides that an individual who has applied for asylum cannot obtain work authorization right. until six months have passed since the time of application. If that were changed, that would be a game changer. And, there and so is, we need Congress 
to fix the broken system. There is legislation, I think bipartisan legislation, to change that timeline on Capitol Hill right now. I do want to ask you before I let you go, on the funding issue, uh, Mayor Adams yesterday, I think, or this weekend, detailed significant cuts across agencies because citing the migrant crisis. I know you guys have, I think, okayed almost $800 million to several states and localities. You've asked for an additional $600 million more. Uh, Is that just not enough at this point in terms of assistance to these localities? Well, uh, first of all, we're working very closely uh, with the cities. Uh, We are confident uh, in the work that we are performing. It is certainly a challenging time now. We have asked Congress for additional shelter and services program funding to provide to cities so that they can address the individuals who are seeking humanitarian relief under the laws that our country uh, provides. And so we have asked Congress for additional funding. All right. And there's a funding battle underway uh, on Capitol Hill, as we know well. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, it's a very important uh, day of remembrance in New York City. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Well, ahead for us here, an ongoing teacher shortage shortage plaguing schools across the country. What is behind it and how some school districts are finding creative solutions. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good morning, everyone. It is Monday. We're so glad you're with us. And we begin with breaking news this morning. The Kremlin and North Korean state media both confirming Kim Jong-un is going to Russia to meet face-to-face with Vladimir Putin. A South Korean official tells CNN that Kim is already on his way. It is a meeting that U.S. intelligence has been sounding the alarm about now. Also developing this morning, the death toll from the catastrophic earthquake in Morocco rising to nearly 2,500 people. Rescuers race against time to save survivors who might still be trapped beneath the rubble. The Secret Service agent who was just feet away from JFK during his assassination now breaking his silence, revealing a new detail that could rewrite much of the narrative. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Here's where we begin. We begin on the breaking news this morning. Kim Jong-un appearing to be on his way to Russia right now to meet Vladimir Putin. A South Korean government official tells CNN it looks like the North Korean dictator is headed there on a train that departed from Pyongyang. Now, moments ago, the Kremlin and North Korean state media confirmed the meeting would happen soon, but did not specify exactly when. You'll remember, last week, U.S. intelligence warned Kim was planning to meet with Putin to discuss supplying weapons for the war in Ukraine in exchange for satellite and nuclear submarine technology. Joining us now, Sumi Terry, former North Korean analyst for the CIA. Um, Thanks so much for being here and for your time. This is an incredibly consequential meeting. U.S. officials uh, had been warning about this meeting. Now that we know it's in the midst of happening, what should people be looking for to come out of it? Well, so first of all, um, I think the Biden administration leaked intelligence about their meeting so to prevent from this from happening, but obviously we can do that because we don't have a lot of leverage with North Korea because talks with no, Pyongyang has completely broken down. What's very concerning is the transfer of technology. Um, not only that North Korea is now going to be a supplier of ammunition and artillery shells to Russia's efforts, uh, war efforts, it's Russia's technology for North Korea's nuclear missile program. So that's very concerning. Um, You know, it's ironic and pathetic in a way that North Korea is now resorting to asking aid from, you know, asking North Korea's help. 
uh, on this. But I think it's, you know, North Korea has a runway nuclear program. They need sensitive technology for nuclear power submarines, for their satellites and so on. So this exchange, this cooperation is very concerning. I think it's also fascinating. And I wonder about sort of the broader impact of this pariah state being needed. It's now needed by Russia in its war in Ukraine and how that changes Kim Jong-un's mindset emboldens him as he gains this new weapons technology from Russia? Does it make North Korea more dangerous? I, yeah, it's absolutely right. This is what I'm saying about Putin. Um, it's, it, no, Russia is supposed to be a patron of North Korea, not, not asking state. 198th ranked economy in the world that cannot feed its own population for help. Yeah. But North Korea loves to play China of Russia. Um, so what's interesting is what China's response is going to be all about this, because because it's going to make North Korea less dependent on China if you can also rely on Russia for aid and technology and so on. So we'll see what China's reaction is. But yes, Kim Jong-un is, you know, it's, he already the external environment was favorable for North Korea in terms of their nuclear missile program, expanding it. United Nations Security Council could not do absolutely anything about this because Russia and China refused to help. Refuse to implement sanctions and refuse to pressure North Korea. So yes, absolutely, Kim Jong Un is emboldened, and there's absolutely no repercussions for his yeah. actions. Can we step back into Poppy's kind of great point and question there? Kim Jong Un leaving the country—not something that happens very often. I think last time uh, he met with Putin was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, him leaving—what does this say about him? Can you tell people kind of who he is? Is known kind of as a hermit-like leader in a hermit-like kingdom to some degree. Well, it's, North Korea is one of the most isolated countries in the world, and their leaders don't like to leave the country. Yes, he, and he, they don't like to fly. Often they take trains. Remember that Hanoi summit where Kim Jong-un rode 70 hours on a train to go and meet with President uh, Trump and come back. Um, I think it says that he's now feeling a little more relaxed, right? Uh, he was, during COVID years, North Korea was complete, you know, complete lockdown, and now he's actually going out, and now he wants to, you know, act like a normal leader of a normal country, which we know that he's not a normal leader of a normal country. We appreciate it, Sumi Terry. Thank you for all the analysis. Well, joining us now is the former European Affairs Director at the National Security Council, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Uh, sir, thanks so much for your time. I, I want to start with there before we kind of dig in a little bit more on Ukraine and the idea of what we're seeing and what it means near term and longer term with this meeting between these two leaders. What's your sense of things? Uh, Thanks for having me on. So I wouldn't overstate too much what this meeting means. Certainly it means that uh, Putin is in a a somewhat of a desperate situation uh, trying to acquire munitions that are severely depleted during this war effort. Uh, A lot of this would be uh, have been coordinated ahead of time. So he had some promises in that regard. Uh, It's not entirely clear what the the, um, Koreans are getting in turn, probably something in the form of advanced technologies, probably something in the form of hard currency. What's striking to me is that uh, Putin didn't attend either the BRICS summit. Uh, the South uh, Africans uh, said that he, they couldn't guarantee the fact that they wouldn't take action against them. He didn't agen- attend the G20, but he was, he's meeting, he's flying all the way from Moscow to Vladivostok to meet Kim Jong-un. Uh, not a good turn of uh, events for um, somebody that positions himself as a, as a world leader. But I think the fact is that the Ukrainians are going to see some um, North Korean munitions start to arrive uh, on in the war effort. I'd like your take on the language that was agreed on for the communique out of the G20, which was strikingly different when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine than last year when there was an outright condemnation. There is not that 
They were not, the United States and others supporting that were not able to get that out of the G20. Nikki Haley was very critical of that in her interview with Jake yesterday. She called it a win for Russia and China. Is she right? I think it's interesting. It's definitely not optimal with regards to Russia-Ukraine. It is the most critical geopolitical challenge the U.S. faces. But I think the fact is that the U.S. has global interests. Uh, It is looking long-term to balance against China. And this was actually, in a lot of ways, a very successful G20, a lot of other business being handled. What they decided to do is not spoil long-term objectives uh, with a communique that could have derailed um, you know, the rest of the, the bargains that was struck. So it is uh, somebody that watches Russia-Ukraine mm-hmm. war very closely. I would have uh, expected to see a much, much firmer position, stance. But in terms of substance, um, there was a lot that the president delivered. And mm-hmm. frankly, um, the U.S. continues to provide support. The West continues to provide support. Uh, the language itself, you know, probably shouldn't have been the obstacle to the rest of the agenda. So it, it's worth it. Net net is what you're saying. What he got out of the trip is uh, worth it, even if you can't get yeah, these words. It's, I, I think it is a uh, probably an indication of the fact that the U.S. wasn't in as dominant a position mm-hmm. as it uh, may have been historically. Uh, some of the power has shifted to other members of the G20. The U.S. is still the most important player uh, in that organization. Uh, so I would have liked to see a, a much stronger language. Uh, I think we probably could have gotten away with it, but um, it, it, I think we did okay. I think we did quite well on balance. The relationships, strengthened relationships with Vietnam, the um, kinds of bargains that were struck with the Indians, I think probably makes it, on balance, uh, makes it worth it. I was struck yesterday by uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, putting a timeline you almost forgot mm-hmm. in the middle of the counteroffensive in the middle of the summer that different weather, different uh, climate is coming soon in the war in Ukraine, saying about 30 to 45 days left before rainy weather pa- patterns start to hamper the ongoing counteroffensive. What does that mean to you? You know, it's interesting that we tend to think about campaign uh, seasons, uh, this uh, somewhat bit, a bit of an antiquated notion about, you know, when it's effective to fight, when it's not effective to fight. I think a lot of our uh, leadership have experienced campaign seasons in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are winter lulls. I don't know if I would expect that much of a lull in the fighting between Russia and Ukraine. I think in the northern and eastern parts around um, Kharkiv area, Luhansk, it it does get, um, it's going to get probably a little bit more difficult to fight. I think in the south, that is an area that tends to be drier. We could very well see a fairly high level of fighting all the way through that season. So I wouldn't overstate the amount of time left. I think it's probably somewhere, I've I've been in this region uh, I think it's probably somewhere closer towards, you know, the very tail end of this year before really weather kind of seeps in and bogs down armored vehicles. But it's also not an armored vehicle fight. This is infantry, light infantry assaulting across fields. Uh, I think the fact is that there'll still be a high degree of fighting. Do want your take while we have you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, about what uh, Senator Tuberville is doing in terms of holding up the confirmation of hundreds, you know, around 300 really critical military positions. We heard um, the House Foreign Affairs Chair Mike Roger, uh, Mike McCall, I should say, excuse me, tell Jake Tapper yesterday that it is, quote, paralyzing. We heard how Nikki Haley responded to it as well. You have said that this makes your blood yeah. boil. Those are your words. Explain to people yes. why. This, this, 
Sure, this, this definitely is a personal topic for me. I was forced out of the military because my p- promotion was politicized. Mm-hmm. I decided I was not going to be the reason that we held up mil- uh, promotions of colonels, and I did not want to subject my peers to uh, basically you know, all this unpredictability. As long as I was going to be on that list, the, uh, President Trump and his, his henchmen were going to keep me off. Tuberville is doing the exact same thing. He is politicizing promotions. He is having a disastrous effect on redness. By the end of this year, it's going to be over 75% of um, uh, general officers and flag officers will be on hold. Imagine a football game in which the head coach is out for a season because we've already been eight months into this hold. No leadership. It's going to be for the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, for uh, elements of the Joint Chief of Staff, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It has an impact. For a little while, you could cruise on, but eventually it has an impact on readiness. It has an impact on how the, the military interfere, interacts with the rest of government. I was up in D.C. visiting with friends, um, military officers serving in the Pentagon. It cascades down to the colonel level and below. It has a major effect on readiness. It's going to have an effect on retention. And this is, this is an attack on U.S. national security. And it's not just Senator Tumberville. It's the entirety of the Republican establishment that refuses to challenge him. This needs to end. It is affecting U.S. national security. It's affecting soldiers' lives. It's affecting soldiers' families mm-hmm. and children. And it needs to stop. I will say we did hear a bit of a challenge uh, from Nikki Haley on it. But I hear you when you're talking about Republican elected officials in, in this moment. That is Go false. Ahead. That, that Go is, ahead. That is not appropriate. Yeah, that is, that is not appropriate. She's saying that the Department of Defense uh, was the root cause. That mm-hmm. is not true. The Department of Defense was taking care, taking care of soldiers. Uh, women that have a reproductive uh, health care needs have the ability to, under this current policy, have the ability to, to have their uh, travel expenses paid. It doesn't cover anything to do with actually the, rep- the medical care itself. Mm-hmm. It's the Department of Defense taking care of families, and it, it is not the responsibility of the, the Department of Defense. It's the politicization by Senator Tuberville, by other fellow mm-hmm. Republicans, of military promotions. There are other ways to handle this. Mm-hmm. Legislation. If Senator Tuberville felt so strongly about it, he could have uh, handled this through legislation. He did not. He took the, the coward's way out, and he's affecting military readiness. It needs to stop. And frankly, this is a, this is a passion project for me, and I'm going to press all the levers I can to do whatever I can to, to help lift that hold. We're glad you're here this morning on all of these topics. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, thank you very much. So there are also new developments this morning in the search for the convicted killer who escaped 12 days ago from that prison in Pennsylvania. Daniello Calvacante was spotted over the weekend again, but he was spotted more than 20 miles from the area where authorities had focused their search. And he has a new look. So on the left of your screen, you see before and then to the right, you see the photos now, right, with a shaved face. Uh, He's described as cleanly shaven, wearing a green hooded sweatshirt, Chief Law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller's been following all of this. He's with us now. I mean, so many things happened. He's got a new look. He somehow shaved. He got a van that he drove till it ran out of gas. He's 20 miles away from where they were looking. Last week, it was a two-mile perimeter. Now where? Now. Where do they look? Everywhere? Now it's the other end of the county. And the idea that he stole a vehicle suggests that he's probably attempting to steal another and put real distance between him and that box, uh, look, he has certainly exceeded my expectations because if you go by past experience, most escaped prisoners from, from an actual prison or a jail uh, are caught within 24 hours, most within two miles. 
I know he's exceeded the expectations of investigators, but you also have to remember the stakes are different for him, right? He's sentenced to life basically without parole, um, and he's out, which means, you know, he is desperate and willing to really play his hardest because if he goes back, he's going to a place where he's not getting out. Uh, I mean, just to ask the obvious non-expert question, how is this possible? Like, how did law enforcement let him through kind of the net, through the search area, let him get to this point? It seems astounding to me. So part of it is terrain, which is, this is farm country. These are large houses far apart from each other. These are roads with, you know, woods on both sides. When we've seen him, it's either been a piece of video on a trail camera or that part of the woods that skirts the border between somebody's backyard while he's looking for looking for a, a house to break into to get that change of clothes, to find an electric razor to shave, to do all the things he's successfully done. Uh, but when you're in that kind of terrain, it's not like in the grid system of a city where people are walking around, that picture is fresh in their mind and they're, they're calling every minute. They use drones over the woods at night, but, you know, they're seeing deers and raccoons, you know, as heat signals during the day. It's too hot for the thermal stuff to work. There's a lot of challenges for them. So you don't see this as a failure or they're dropping the ball? This is just the reality of this dynamic? I mean, I know my fugitive hunts. Uh, I was, you know, in the FBI after we found R Rob Eric Rudolph. Right. You know, that was five years in the Nantahala Forest with somebody who was trained by the military to survive. Uh, back in Pennsylvania, though, we had the Mike Burnham case just in July, 10 days on the run also found in the woods. Uh, we're rounding that period now in this case. Uh, but in Pennsylvania, you had, I think, 2014, the Eric Frine case. This was a domestic terrorist, 48 days on the run. And that ended in a shootout where a trooper was killed. So this is not unusual in the scope of a desperate criminal in a rural environment exploiting the terrain. Um, but it is, uh, it is a case where they want to get him back, they have to get him back. And of course, from his point of view, he's got to keep going. Yeah. Surpassing expectations uh, to some degree in terms of his ability. It's been a remarkable story. John Miller, appreciate it as always. We'll stay on it. Well, the death toll in Morocco rising this morning. Nearly 2,500 people are now dead after a powerful earthquake. We are live on the ground. That's next. You are also now, take a look. These are live images of the youngest and most active volcanoes on the island of Hawaii. That erupting right now. We'll have details ahead. Well, this morning, the death toll in Morocco is rising. Nearly 2,500 people are now confirmed dead after Friday's catastrophic earthquake. Right now, rescue teams are in a race against time to save survivors. The critical 72-hour window to find people alive in the rubble is closing quickly. CNN senior international correspondent Sam Kiley is in a devastated mountain village. Sam, what are you seeing on the ground right now? Well, uh, Phil, here we are in Azni, where the Moroccan Armed Forces, who have a specialist unit designed for catastrophic interventions, emergency interventions worldwide, have now managed to establish a presence. So they've got a radiological tent, uh, they've got laboratory testing facilities, uh, they've got surgeries, they've got uh, a whole series of specialist tents. They've got 24 doctors, 25 doctors, 48 uh, nurses already. The capacity of this field hospital is 30. Uh, but as we've seen when we've been up into the hills, the numbers of people injured are climbing because these mountains up there are where the 
need is greatest uh, Phil and Poppy, and they are highly inaccessible. So at the same time, the military is also sending significant numbers of helicopters up into the areas that have been cut off in order to bring people down uh, and get them treatment. If they, people have been uh, sadly killed, then they will be uh, left in place for the time being because the purpose of this Moroccan emergency operation right now is triage, is to find the people who can and should be helped, get the most injured immediately to the established hospitals, stabilize them here. They can expand this facility if they need to. They're also building just beyond these tents a very substantial accommodation area, a refugee camp effectively, of tents uh, to accommodate people who are coming down out of the hills, many of them also people staying up in the hills. So the next phase uh, for the military may well be to try to get accommodation, tents and other uh, support up to people into those more isolated hill areas. But quite naturally, the Moroccan people in the, in the initial stages, particularly in that 72 hour period when people stuck under buildings have a chance of survival, have been angry about what they said was the slow response of the Moroccan government to their predicament. The reality is that the roads have been closed by this earthquake. Assessing their needs is really paramount, but now they are getting underway. Sam Kiley, thank you to you and your team on the ground. We'll get back to you soon. Well, this morning, Hurricane Lee rapidly rapidly re-intensifying to a major hurricane over unusually warm ocean waters. The storm has strengthened back to a Category 3 on Sunday with maximum sustained winds of 120 miles per hour. Now it's expected to ramp up to a Category 4 later today. Ali is expected to slow down considerably and spend the next several days sending hazardous beach conditions as it inches closer to the East Coast. Forecasters warn the dangerous high surf and life-threatening rip currents as the storm moves up the Atlantic. Happening now, Hawaii's youngest and most active volcano is erupting again after nearly three months of quiet. Authorities raising Kilauea's alert level from watch to warning as they work to assess the hazard from the eruption. Lava has been spewing from the fissures at the crater's base. But for now, officials say the activity is confined to the park and, quote, does not pose a lava threat to communities. For now, primary concerns are volcanic gas and delicate strands of volcanic glass that can float downwind and cause eye and skin irritation. Well, Nikki Haley is seizing on a CNN poll that shows she's the strongest candidate to take on President Biden, the latest on the 2024 race when we come back. Also looking at live pictures this morning, that is the memorial marking Ground Zero right here in New York City. It has been 22 years since America was attacked on September 11th. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, very clear about what she thinks about the current relationship between the U.S. and China. Listen to this. China, China's been practically preparing for war with us for years. Yes, I view China as an enemy. How much more has to happen? for Biden to realize you don't send cabinet members over to China to appease them. You start getting serious with China and say, we're not going to put up with it. There's also a new CNN polling. It shows Haley leading President Biden by six points in a hypothetical general election matchup, making her the Republican candidate posing the greatest risk to President Biden at this point. Haley says it shows Americans are ready for change. 
I think the majority of Americans know we need a new generational leader, that we need to leave the negativity uh, of the past behind us. The majority of Americans don't want to see a rematch between Trump and Biden. That's been very clear. Or even McKen following all of this and joins us now. I, I thought it was a really fascinating interview that um, Jake did with her yesterday. They got to so many issues that affect everyday Americans. And she gave a lot of very straight answers on exactly how she feels on this stuff. And it seems like voters may be responding to her calls for change. Well, Poppy, if you are Ambassador Haley or her team, uh, you are encouraged by this polling data. And what we've seen is her on the campaign trail really seizing on this, uh, this notion that she may be the best one to confront President Biden in a general election. But context is really key here. She still lags far behind Trump in support among Republican voters, uh, well behind DeSantis as well in many polls. But her messaging has been consistent. She has long argued that there is a need for a new generation of leadership, that it is time for folks to pass the baton here. And she's been out for months uh, sounding this alarm. She was the first person, of course, to announce her candidacy after Trump. She maintains a majority of Americans don't want to see this rematch between Trump and Biden. And Bobby, something that I've heard in recent days that has caught my ear, she's doubled down on her hawkish foreign policy position. She's called China the enemy in that interview with our colleague Jake Tapper. I'm curious to see if that resonates with primary voters, since we've seen a growing number of conservative voters really favor a more isolationist view. Eva, can I ask you, uh, another issue that uh, the ambassador weighed in on was Tommy Tupperville, the senator mm -hmm. from Alabama who has these holds uh, on hundreds of flag officers in the United States Senate right now. What do you have to say? Well, to be clear, there's just one man, Senator Tuberville, you know, holding up this process. She was a little bit wishy-washy on this particular answer. She immediately started blasting the abortion travel reimbursement policy and didn't seem to have a huge appetite to take on the senator directly. She argued the Democrats should vote person by person to advance uh, these promotions. Let's take a listen. I'm not saying Senator Turbeville is right in doing this because I don't want to use them as pawns. But if you love our military, if you are so adamant about it, then go and make Congress. Republicans and Democrats have to go through person by person. So she seems more interested in attacking the Department of Defense than the intransigence of Senator Turbeville. Poppy, Phil. Yeah, a very important point to make, Eva McKen. Thanks very much. Well, Michigan State head football coach Mel Tucker has been suspended without pay following accusations of sexual harassment. We'll speak to the investigative reporter who broke this story coming up next. And a new development in the case against the former president of the Spanish Soccer Federation following weeks of fierce criticism after he kissed a player without her consent. That's next. Spanish Soccer Federation President Luis Rubiales has resigned. This follows weeks of intense backlash after an unsolicited kiss of one of Spain's female soccer stars, Jenny Hermoso. That was during the Women's World Cup celebration last month. Rubiales said the kiss was consensual. Hermoso said it was not. He could also face some other very serious consequences after a Spanish prosecutor has filed a complaint of sexual assault and coercion against him. Well, Michigan State has suspended its head football coach, Mel Tucker, without pay as it investigates allegations of sexual harassment, allegations made by a rape survivor and victim's advocate, Brenda Tracy. 
The coach told investigators, quote, Miss Tracy's distortion of our mutual consensual, mutually consensual and intimate relationship into allegations of sexual exploitation has really affected me. I am not proud of my judgment and I'm having difficulty forgiving myself for getting into this situation, but I did not engage in misconduct by any definition. The investigation into these allegations was first reported by our next guest, Kenny Jacoby, an investigative reporter for USA Today. He joins us now. Uh, Kenny, thank you for joining us. I want to start with, you know, the suspension yesterday came in the wake of your reporting. What's your sense of why nothing happened to Mel Tucker, the head coach, before this became public because of your work? Yeah, um, these are very complicated situations. This case has been going on for about nine months now, and uh, the university did face a lot of criticism yesterday for its decision to uh, suspend Mel Tucker only after the allegations became public. Um, however, you know, it is complicated. Um, if the school were to have suspended him at the onset of the investigation, um, they do risk potentially drawing uh, attention to the case, which is not always what uh, victims in these sorts of cases uh, want. The, the context of this also comes uh, with the fact that you have a number, the Larry Nasser, and having previously worked there, et cetera. And so given that context, I thought it was notable that the interim uh, president, uh, Teresa Woodruff, said, quote, this morning's news, meaning what you broke, sounds like the MSU of old, it was not, and she went on to say, it is not because an in, it is not the same because an independent, unbiased investigation is and continues to be conducted. What is your response, given all your reporting, hearing that? Yeah, you know, there is uh, deep mistrust on the MSU campus from students, from employees, uh, from alumni, and in the East Lansing community after the betrayal that was mm -hmm. the Larry Nasser scandal. Um, and, uh, you know, they repeatedly missed opportunities to uh, stop one of the most prolific sexual abusers in American history. And so, you know, these it, when when MSU takes this long to suspend the coach without pay, um, it it people tend to think of that as they're covering this up. And that doesn't sit well uh, with most of these people. I think the date that everybody's pointing to right now is October 5th. It's when there's going to be a hearing. Um, what's the, what are the stakes at that hearing? What do we expect from that hearing? Yeah, so they're going to be uh, both sides. Uh, Mel Tucker and Brenda Tracy will have the opportunity to make arguments, present evidence, uh, question witnesses. And the crux of the allegations are that Mel Tucker, um, during a phone call in April 2022, made sexual comments and masturbated without Tracy's consent. Um, and so uh, at this hearing, there will be a neutral hearing officer who will listen to the evidence and at the end of it, make a determination as to whether Mel Tucker violated the school's sexual harassment policies. There's a lot at stake for both sides here. Um, for Mel Tucker, he, two years ago, signed one of the most lucrative coaching contracts in U.S. history, a 10-year, $95 million deal. It came fully guaranteed unless he is fired for cause. And so if he is fired for cause after this, he could lose out on the potentially $80 million left on his deal. Meanwhile, Brenda Tracy um, 
you know, has a career in advocacy. She runs a nonprofit called Set the Expectation. Her career entails traveling the country to athletic departments and and uh, professional and college and high school teams and educating athletes and coaches about sexual violence. And the way that Mel Tucker has portrayed her in this case as somebody who files false reports and who mixes uh, personal and professional relationships with coaches could be very damaging uh, to that reputation. And so she really fears that uh, he will undo her legacy. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to watch going forward. Brenda Tracy was an honorary captain at the spring game. We were just showing that photo. Uh, last year, I believe. Uh, this was uh, really important work uh, for you to bring this forward, and certainly we'll be following it with you as the weeks ahead continue. Kenny Jacoby at USA Today, thanks so much. Thank you. Ahead for us, a former Secret Ser- Service agent uh, ch- with new details on the assassination of JFK. We have some of that reporting ahead. And today marks 22 years since the September 11th terrorist attacks that changed a nation and the world. A look at where the war on terror stands. That's ahead. We're showing you live images right now of Ground Zero as New York City is about to observe a moment of silence marking the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks in the moment the first plane hit the North Tower. Let's listen in. Now, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Uh, John, as we watch all this play out and you think of what a poignant and informative moment, not just this today, but also 22 years ago in so many people's lives, um, despite the fact it's more than two decades ago, it was also extraordinarily, it changed the face of counterterrorism. It changed the face of law enforcement, of homeland security. Do you think that change has been effective? I know it has because I know what it was before. You know, I sat in a cave with Osama bin Laden in 1998 for an hour where he described declaring war on America. He predicted a black day for America, after which the states would no longer be united. He said we would understand the meaning of this when we were bringing the bodies in boxes and coffins in our shameful defeat. Uh, So that was the thing that led up to what we call the intelligence failure of 9-11. We needed to see that coming. Since then, you've seen the formulation, as the secretary told you earlier today, of the Department of Homeland Security, the director of national intelligence, the change in the culture of the FBI to not just figure out who did it, but make sure it didn't happen in the first place. A tremendous challenge. So it's, it's changed markedly. Our big risk is to not fall back to where we were before, because that failure would be bureaucratic in form, but human in nature, when people just start to compete, collaborate less, you know, seek credit, um, allow the dots not to get connected because they're keeping them from each other. 
And that's always going to be a fight. We remember what former President Obama said 10 years ago about the war on terror. This was him in 2013. Let's listen. We must define our effort not as a boundless global war on terror, but rather as a series of persistent targeted efforts to dismantle specific networks of violent extremists that threaten America. In many cases, this will involve partnerships with other countries. What effect has that had in the 10 years after we heard him say that? You know, that was the president talking to the defense um, university about the shape and future of war. And I think his message was, in the war on terrorism, it's not one country's uniforms on another country's soil fighting other uniforms. This is an intelligence-led war that has to be guided by precision strikes. Um, that means more intelligence, more use of defined special forces in strategic hits. The idea of sending the big green machine, you know, to take over a whole country, um, I think we've learned in the last two or three instances, has been expensive, costly in terms of treasure, but more importantly, blood, and with results that have been uncertain. We were able to dismantle al-Qaeda and ISIS through precision strikes and captures. When you look back, you know, kind of to that exact point, when you look at the military operations that followed the 9-11 attacks, and you look at the cost uh, in terms of blood, in terms of treasure, not just Americans, but worldwide, um, do you think the right lessons were learned from that experience, kind of to your point, in terms of operationally? I think what we learned is in war today, victory doesn't look like what it used to. It's hard to define what it looks like. In the, in the old model, somebody came with a, a sheet of paper and a form of surrender, and it was signed by everybody, and we went forward. In this case, we're talking about wars that went on longer than any other wars in history. Uh, we're talking about victory, which, you know, you invade Afghanistan to rout al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and you leave with the Taliban in control again and al-Qaeda able to regain sanctuary. Um, I think that's a lot of what President Obama was trying to say, which is those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it, and we've got to study our history and adjust our future. And just because we have you at the table, and given your role um, here in New York City before you were one of our colleagues, I just want to give you a moment to reflect on on this day, uh, this city, and, and, um, and where we have come since then. You know, I drive by there all the time. And you can't go by there without reliving a piece of that day. But I was also there on Saturday, um, Sunday, with 9-11 victims' families, um, reflecting on the past and what's needed for those victims. But also, you know, Rob Kassane from the FBI. He was a bond trader on 9-11, yeah. destined to live a life and make a lot of money. He's the head of counterterrorism today at the FBI's New York office. Rebecca Weiner had come out of Harvard and Harvard Law. She's in my old job as Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Um, you saw Terry Tobin, a chief in the NYPD, talking about swearing in the children of people, cops, who died on 9-11, children who weren't born yet right. when their fathers and mothers died. So we see 
probably the largest since Pearl Harbor of a move towards service, sacrifice, dedication to make sure that that history is not repeated. And it was inspiring, again. And the voices of those children, as our colleague on the ground, Bryn, told us earlier, reading some of the names today as they, as they are honored and remembered. And go ahead. I was just going to ask, you know, with that in mind, you think constantly, you know, generationally, how many people moved towards service and the way, how many people's life decisions were made on that day or in the days following that day in terms of their paths. What concerns you in terms of as new generations, since there's 21-year-olds who weren't alive when this happened? So that's interesting. You know, in the NYPD, um, I started out with a team that had survived 9-11 and knew what they were fighting for. Um, and then over time, you know, today in the NYPD, 6% uh, of the police officers and analysts who were there were there on 9-11. Mm -hmm. That means the largest percent um, know it from the history books, but not as a life experience. And yet, when I talk to those young analysts, when I see the cases they're working on, um, when I see the hours they put in and why, um, they still know what we're fighting for. I was thinking about all of the families that all of us have through the years had the honor of meeting and reporting on and the ways that they have honored the lives of those they lost. Today, I always think about a couple, Liz and Steve Alderman, whose son was killed and the foundation they wanted, went on to create and how they dedicated their life to that work ever since they lost their child and pouring that trauma into something to make the world a better place. I mean, that is also the history of 9-11 that we hold on to so closely. You know, spending the weekend with uh, Mary and Frank Fetchett, who lost their son, um, yeah. who was working in the building that day, and started the Voices of 9-11, which is not the Voices of 9-11. It's, it's just the voices. It's four victims. Because they realized that people in trauma and loss are going to need what they've learned from this tragedy. Um, and so when the Newtown school massacre happened, they brought their group together and reached out to those parents and said, We've been where you are, not exactly the same place, but the same feelings, and here's how we can help. Um, it's a legacy that um, has just taken people to make sure that those who died from the effects of working in the rescue effort on the pile um, and others are taken care of by the government and not forgotten. Not forgotten. <coughs> um, we really appreciate it sharing your time, your remembrances, as we continue to throughout the course of this day. John Miller, thank you. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.